Well, Film Files, like a 1993 animated Steven Spielberg production, we're back. We got a good show. We have a full show. And uh, I spent all week working on that uh, relevant uh, show opener. So we'll just go right to the introductions. Start with this guy. Hello, it's me, Joey Fondle. It's great to be back. Joey, hello. <laughs> hello, Jimmy. And you, sir? Uh, Corey Gilbert, uh, back for my second time. Thanks for having yeah, me, Yeah, I'm happy to have you. This is great. So uh, I asked everybody, I asked the cast to come up with uh, a movie that they thought we should do. And everybody gave me great suggestions. And I didn't go with any of them. Uh, not for any particular reason. But I chose uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977. So we watched it, and now we're going to talk about it. You're listening to 90.7 WAZU, and this is Movie Show Theater. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Good morning, Vietnam! I drink your milkshake. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Keep the change, you filthy animal. Sorry, you just tough talk a dead body? Get busy living or get busy dying. Keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. That's God right. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. So I had read that this is being re-released nationwide, I think exclusively through AMC Select Cities for the 40th anniversary which is crazy and i've always liked it i would never have called it one of my favorite spielberg movies until i watched it about four days ago it had been more than five years since i had seen it but less than 10 years since i had seen it and it was like a completely different movie for me and this is a pretty standard film class appreciation uh selection this movie is there's just you know from the music to the story to the effects to the performances it's just phenomenal it holds up so well the close encounters of the third kind the visual effects which you mentioned are still i mean like everything like the classic shot like the the shot that is synonymous with close encounters of the third kind of the little boy opening the door and there's all of that yellow and orange going on outside like that that fire of like the alien spaceship arriving mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is like it's amazing. And the, the the spaceship at the end, like everything in that movie just works. Um, the aliens themselves, a little hokey, I guess you could say. That's the only thing that I would say doesn't hold up super well. But even mm -hmm. then, at that point in the story, you're so invested in, like, you'll go for that ride. Yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. I still fell for it. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even have that complaint. I mean, that's the ultimate question with, with sci-fi and... I think that it's interesting because this was 77, so it was like all those science fiction movies that I remember that came prior, nine times out of ten, were either like totally antagonistic aliens that were up to no good. I mean, there was The Day the Earth Stood Still, Klaatu, he wasn't bad, but he was just kind of like, y'all need to chill. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was kind of an interesting time, I think, for this movie to be released. You know, and this was like the golden age of science fiction with, you know, Star Wars, obviously, and... Uh, I didn't realize it came out the same year as Star Wars. Yeah. 1977? That's crazy. Yeah. They actually made a... George Lucas and Steven Spielberg made a bet against each other. They were betting against their own movies. So, we know who won that one. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, Star Wars was so accessible to like every age group. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas, right. you know, Close Encounters, not so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, Close Encounters, very much more of a psychological, cerebral type of film. Right, right. Nobody under 16 or 17 was going to want to yeah. watch it. Whereas not- Star Wars, I mean... My parents loved it as much as I did when we went to the movies together to see right. it. Yeah, right. so it was. It makes sense that Star Wars would do better in the box office. Well, I guess E.T. was uh, partly inspired by Close Encounters, and Spielberg thought, "I wonder what ha- what would happen if one of these little guys didn't make it back on the ship." Yeah, it's a logical follow up to Close Encounters. Um, I think that Close Encounters to to tra- transition back to Close Encounters, it's a classic Spielberg film. You know, mm-hmm. from John Williams music to the Richard Dreyfus man on a journey mm-hmm. main character and then with scientific exploration yeah all fused into it i mean that, that's classic spielberg formula right there definitely. yeah i love and it seems like this movie is responsible for establishing a lot of those classic spielberg conventions like i love just like the idea of life on a cul-de-sac in the 80s i just romanticize that idea and i think it's partially from this, I think it's partially from E.T., you know, but there's this whole idea of empowered children and children making their own decisions. You know, there's some um, absentee parent themes, so like in, in E.T., the whole uh, idea of taking matters into yeah. their own hands. Right, and right. Yeah, I just, mean, Barry's mom is a single mom, just like Elliot's mom was, yeah. this, like, divorced or whatever that was. So, you know, yeah. that's a yeah, that's Spielberg, and that's a very powerful tool that he uses for that specific purpose. But, yeah, he's very good at romanticizing the mundane, which is life on a cul-de-sac. You know, that's where I grew I grew up on a cul-de-sac, you know, with a subdivision of houses. Was it but awesome? there's It was okay. Subdivision <laughs> of houses, <laughs> but definitely plenty of forest to yeah. explore and right. be freaked out about, too, and wonder what's in it at night and all those things, right, And as a child. And Spielberg's films are very much, even the ones that focus on adults, it's their child imagination that he's like playing on in their yeah, character, yeah. you know. But I, I think Close Encounters for me, I watched it again. Uh, I, I mean, I've watched it many times, but I'm like you, I haven't watched it in the last few years, I, you know. So I pulled it out and watched it, um, obviously for this, but to enjoy it again. Um, what I found fascinating was that Richard Drivers, Melinda Dillon, Barry's mom, were what the story became to me was. You know, outside of all the stuff about, you know, contact with extraterrestrials and all that is they were two people that had never met that had the same obsession. Yeah. yeah. That started on the same journey of obsession with this, in this case, of this visual that they can't figure out what it means. And then in the end, they find out what it means. You know, I mean, obviously, Melinda Dillon's character had a very specific drive, and that was to get her son back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas Richard Dreyfus's was more romantic yeah it was almost like his obsession was rooted in the fact that he might have just been bored with his life yeah Yeah, i think there was this amazing occurrence that awakened him and made him realize that there's life beyond that cul-de-sac not only on his planet but in the stars and and i think it was an observation on the you know soon to be middle-aged middle america guy that's like okay is this the culmination of my life yeah, there's a really good scene where he is talking with his son about fractions, and that kid is banging in the background. Oh, my God. And they just yeah. do such a good job of conveying this idea of like a mundane autopilot sort of life, but not unhappy. I mean, he he probably loves his wife. He clearly loves his kids. He's not a discontented he does, person. He but, does abandon them for aliens. <laughs> Let's yeah, not forget that. Yeah, so... 
But yeah, the other thing that I caught when I rewatched it was that each storyline reminded me of a TV show because they're largely self-contained. Like right. the whole Francois Truffaut and the the sound storyline has nothing to do with Richard Dreyfus and his quest, and Richard Dreyfus storyline has nothing to do with. Melinda Dillon's until the very end when they meet, and so that's not something that's often seen. It's kind of like the stand, you know. It's like you didn't see that in movies around that time very often, where it's all of these disparate characters who kind of come together at the end for the finale. For the finale, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a great. I mean, you're right. I think that was very intentional. I mean, there was a single purpose at the end. None of the storylines needed each other mm-hmm. to get to the end. Their, art, their journeys didn't need to be connected until the end. But at the end, they very much needed to be connected. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. And right? I, like that, I like that you said obsession, too. And I think that it definitely is that. But there's a line where Richard Dreyfus is outside. And he's like, what do you, what do you want? This isn't fair. I was like, oh, that's really interesting because he's not, he's not pursuing this like, I think this is really cool. I want to know more. Mm-hmm. He's pursuing this because he doesn't have a choice. It's like some sort of like addiction. You know, right. that and, and Melinda Dillon is the same way. And so I think that uh, because he's such a likable dude that you are like rooting for him the whole time, even though he's like driving his family away from him, completely destroying their house. Yeah. I mean, to the reality that we exist in, he was completely irresponsible to his family and going insane, you know, borderline. Right. You know needing to be committed right i think terry gilliam does this a lot too in his movies where he takes the the point of view of someone that's considered quote-unquote insane and then you come to realize it's because they were right like the fisher and king he, well the fisher king for, the fisher king for sure and and 12 monkeys you know richard Dreyfus's character was completely irresponsible from you know the normal conventions of our world right in our reality but as a viewer we know that he's not so yeah. it was you know it's interesting that the film could have gone that direction where we weren't too sure if he was you know right. where, where the audience could have been put in his family's position instead of his position if yeah. we wouldn't have been there in the truck with him correct if we weren't in the truck with him and then maybe we see the truck at, at the in some other way later and we're like yeah. oh well he yeah. you know but um, it's interesting. I mean, I think Spielberg didn't want that. He wanted us to enjoy the journey of Richard Dreyfus and be on it with him. Yeah. You know, and then with Melinda Dillon's character, she had a very legitimate reason for doing whatever it is she needed to do because right. we, she was looking for her son and knew that this, whatever this vision was, had something to do with seeing him again. Right. And so it was easy for her to do whatever. But from also from society's standpoint, you know, her son was gone. And to say that it was the clouds or to say that it was spaceships um she could have been committed Mm -hmm. and even accused of having something to do with foul play with her son right and the film did not explore any of that which i'm which i was fine with i mean spielberg the point of the film wasn't to explore those types of things but it was interesting you know that one person you knew had this very direct very tangible reason for the passion of the journey and the obsession and then richard dreyfus it was more of a it was more of an intellectual, spiritual one, mm-hmm. right? And we forgive him for it, but it would have been hard for Terry Garr's character to forgive him for that. Totally. I know? mean, do you feel like his actions are justifiable knowing everything that we know as the audience? Because I know that later on, Spielberg went back and said that he finds it difficult to stomach the fact that Roy Neary left his family in that film. And that if, if he could go back and do things differently, that he would 
rework that part of the movie. It was a lot of forgiveness as of as an audience member to deal with that, and then he just kisses Melinda Dillon on the mountainside later, yeah. and it's that like, was that and, was my turning point, you know. For and, sure. and there and that brings me to a point that I had f- when I watched it again, um, and it's kind of also to your point of the different stories going on that all converge at the end. Um, there was a lot of thinness in some of them, you know, where I think it showed Spielberg's was still fairly young as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. If he would have done that film now, I think all those different stories would have had a lot more detail in it. And he's such a great detail oriented like storyteller with whether the film had to be three hours long at that point, I don't know. But, you know, I think that it just showed that he was still pretty young. Yeah. But yeah. it showed that he had that he was on the path of greatness because I don't think many people could have even made it the movie that well, you know, even on the thin way that he did it. Right. There, there was just a lot of there were a lot of gaps. Yeah. That it was like you, know, you just kind of had to fill it in. And I'm fine with that. Right. Right. But there was a lot, you know, like there was just a lot. I think the filling it like for me, when I look at those movies and I think what I like a lot about the those movies from those directors at that time, notably like Spielberg and George Lucas, like you mentioned filling in the gaps kind of with your with your mind. I, I think that that's what I like the most about those directors at that time is that they left so much to the imagination with Jaws and Close Encounters and Star Wars, obviously. A lot of that was like budgetary, but like that scene with the kid banging, like he just sets the camera back and like I, I feel like a, a modern movie would be cutting around the room and, and be more frenetic. I don't know. There's just something so laid back and calm about everything mm-hmm. you know it was the right it was the right decision on how to do that scene and the right way to edit it too because there might have yeah. been those punch-ins in that scene but the yeah. editors didn't use them for that reason because that was the setup to tell us that richard dreyfus like that was his routine mm-hmm. and some of the times it was just like i just want to run out of the house and scream and go somewhere else to the moon if i can and yeah, yeah. you know that was the point you know, almost... He loves his children and all that. And actually, in deep down, he probably enjoys it. But on the surface, it's a long day at work. Yeah, and then your kid's banging on the thing and your wife's complaining about whatever it is. And, you know, that's his routine. Right. Yeah. And that was what they were showing us. Right. They were showing. And that was to let us know that, you know, part of his breakdown and part of his, you know, part of the easiness for him to run away from all that was sometimes that you just do want to run away from it even yeah. if there isn't yeah. some big mystical spiritual universal alien totally. reason totally yeah i think that's probably a pretty common even then a pretty common middle american fantasy and so to sort of romanticize that and play it out in such a lavish fashion um the truck scene i forgot all the little details in that scene first of all i forgot that he totally lost gravity for a couple seconds, that was incredible, and all you know the electricity, whatever. And I, I don't ever remember feeling like he was chosen by any means because the light shines down on him, mm-hmm. it comes back up, and then it shines down like a hundred feet away, also on the road. So I'm left wondering: was it just a chance coincidence that his truck happened to be there, or were they yeah. just like randomly? scanning patches maybe they were taking soil samples and his truck just happened to be there there's a lot of like reasoning behind why certain people were brought to the desert a lot of it was like the aliens are returning people so they're returning the missing fighter pilots they're returning uh her son 
it, it never really explains why he needed to be there at that time. Yeah. I know, and then he's chosen to go on board the alien spaceship at the end. But again, like it goes back to like, do you really need to know the answer or would you rather, should you rather be left to wonder about what the answer is and like yeah. fill in those gaps with your I'm, imagination? I'm, I'm okay not knowing. It was that second scan when the light shines back down. Not because I... Like I said, needed to know, but I I don't want to miss anything this time around, you know, because there's so much content below the surface, and there's so much that I didn't get. The second light, you're right, it's confusing because I, I agree with Joey. I, I, would like to, I would like to fill in that gap myself, but it could have been a random choosing. You know, yeah. oh, well, he's out in the middle of nowhere, and he's an easy target, and, and the timing's right, so let's let's get him, or whatever you want to call that. But then, yeah, the second, and then from there, I can decide that for my own self but then yeah the second light thing then it was like well wait are you guys gonna go ahead and tell me instead or not mm-hmm. yeah they should have just, you know, just edited it out just edit that out you know because that mm-hmm. was like wait a minute okay now what's that so then you know now it's now i'm now i'm left to am i supposed to know or are you gonna let me decide right yeah, and mm-hmm. it's do, give me one or the other don't start confusing me yeah um, but it wasn't a huge deal for me i i still was fascinated by you know answering those questions for myself all the questions that jimmy just asked and that's what you should do you know for me there's gaps and then there's leaving it up to my imagination but then there's story holes you know where you skip too far and there's too right. much in between that i have to fill in on my own and to me that's not the best way to tell the story. Yeah. Right? And there isn't, I mean, there isn't a lot of that in Close Encounters. And and for a guy like me sitting here, like Close Encounters is an amazing movie. You know, it's pretty hard to, to really give it a lot of negative criticism. But, you know, a lot of that had to do with the times. I think now it's easier to tell those types of stories. Technologies, mm-hmm. you know, totally. makes it easier to tell those types of stories. You don't have to spend as much money. Uh, CGI doesn't take as long, so you might have more time in production. I don't know. Right. Like, the equation's different now, right? And so, you, so you know, a lot of that, I have to look at it and go, okay, it was made in 1977. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to give it some latitude there. And that's a double-edged sword in so many ways because it's better because of the limitations, I feel like. Like, Jaws is absolutely 100% better because of the limitations. Star Wars, I would argue, is better because... I mean, look at the Star Wars prequels compared to the original Star Wars. Like, he went way too far in one direction because he had unlimited power, to quote a line from that movie. And uh, and so it's like... I feel like Close Encounters is definitely a product of its time, and it couldn't be made in any other era. I mean, look at War of the Worlds, the the Spielberg remake. I mean, that movie, I'm not a fan. And that's like a, a great example of what he might have done with unlimited power in terms of money, in terms of visual effects, story, mm-hmm. time. Yeah, for sure. Um, I like, I'd like to make a point about the term science fiction. I don't like it. Why do we have to add fiction to that category? We don't say Western fiction, drama fiction, yeah. action fiction. For me, science fiction is a bit of a, a mislabeling for whatever reasons. But, you know, science fiction, I mean, is it fiction? Why does it have to be pointed out as fiction? Yeah. Because I think guys like Spielberg probably read a lot of a lot of books about the subject matter that they explore in their films. Now, they do it in a fictional, you know, standpoint, but it's based on, you know, stuff that is... Uh, books that they read on technology and UFO, mm-hmm. UFO phenomenon, all those things, and they integrate them in. I, I've, I've spent a long time reading books in that world on all sides, debunking side, the 
conspiracy, like fringe side, all of it, right? And then you know, try to kind of just like find myself in the middle on what makes sense and what it, what doesn't. But I think Spielberg, you know, is one of those people that reads those types of books, and oh, then sure. he extracts that type of information to make the films. Because I see a lot of the concepts that I read in a lot of those books in movies like Close Encounters. Um, the anti-gravity, because, you know, obviously there's a ton out there to read on different types of technology that is assumed that craft like that would use, and anti-gravity is mm-hmm. obviously a big one. And then the idea of abducting children is uh, is a very um, common... Extraterrestrials, if they are to abduct, will abduct young, young children because they're still formative and they'll still accept things. Whereas, you know that line in The Matrix, we don't wake people up after a certain age mm-hmm. because our brains can't handle the, the truth mm-hmm. because we're too locked in as adults. It's the same concept, right? That they, yeah. they would abduct children at the youngest age they could because they're more accepting. Like the boy in Close Encounters, first of all, excellent performance. Yeah. For, yeah. for a child that age. I mean, yeah, he, Carrie Duffy, I think, he was his was, name. He was my favorite part of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, his acting was perfect. But he was accepting of it. Like, he was running towards it. Yeah. Because yeah. he had nothing to be afraid of. Exactly. He had no reason to think that there was anything, uh, any darkness looming. I guess Steven Spielberg had a really great way of, um, he's got these tricks for uh, working with kids. And for Carrie Guffey, the scene where he needs to smile, he's like smiling off camera. Spielberg was opening um, a present with his name on it slowly off camera. And at one point he even yells toys. The kid does. He's like, toys, toys. (laughs) And so that's what it was. And in the kitchen, it's like a little bit of a mixed emotional response. So Spielberg had... Two of the crew members, one was dressed as a clown and one was dressed as a gorilla, and he had them standing behind two blinds, two cardboard blinds. So the kid walks in, and they drop one of the blinds, and it's the clown, and the kid gets a little scared, and then he drops the other one, and it's a gorilla. The kid gets even more scared. And then the gorilla takes his mask off, and it's Bob Westermore, the special effects guy that Carrie knows, and so he starts laughing. Spielberg's like, that's it. Yeah, that's great. That's great direction, right? Um, But still, the kid's got to execute, and he did. It was really great. I mean, in the blocking too. I mean, when he's that first scene where he's walking all through the house, and oh yeah, you know that's a lot on a kid that's what three. Yeah, you know, I mean that's. That's good stuff there. There was, there was a lot of poltergeist uh, reminiscence, too, I noticed. I know that was Toby right. Hooper, but Which, uh, the scene in the bedroom with the kid, one of the scenes in the beginning, there's a scene in the bedroom and then the scene in the living room when all the toys, the police car turns its mm-hmm. lights on and starts driving. Very it just it reminded me yeah. of the scene because it was terrifying. I forgot how when the kid actually gets taken, I forgot how intense that was. Damn, this is in, not a this is not a movie for children. In Poltergeist, in uh, Close Encounters. Oh, Close Encounters. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's absolutely terrifying. And when he opens the door, I mean, that's you know, you were mentioning yeah, that yeah. iconic scene. That is, you know, that's that's a powerful image. That's a powerful visual. And the trees blowing like it's insanely. Beautiful too. It's very yeah. It's yeah beautiful. Whenever she runs out of the house and the amount of stars, I guess that was probably a matte shot. Absolutely, the way that it they, was. Yeah, yeah. soundstage with a matte shot for sure. It was just gorgeous. Yeah, it was. I mean, I think all of that was soundstage with Matt. Even like when they're on the highway, you know, on that S curve on the highway, oh, and yeah. the ships come flying over their head, uh-huh. which is also another iconic image yeah, from that film for sure. And that holds up. Like the visual effects hold up so well. 
you yeah. know, it's 40 years old. So the music, um, me and my fiance got to see John Williams perform uh, a couple years ago with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And I guess he opens every concert with the theme from Close Encounter, the opening theme when it has that oh like really God. long yeah. build up, I and then it just it. like cuts off. <laughs> I well, he that's what he opened the show with, and I just had like goosebumps head to toe. Yeah. So the music, you know, John Williams is he's the best man. He's he's, he's the master, and he like tells this parallel story, you know, along with the visual story, but he he uses these like. Moments of restraint and subtlety so well. Like in the car, uh, when the electricity goes off, there's no music at all. And I think made now, there would be that temptation to over stylize and oversaturate and try to tell the viewer how to feel. And yeah, exactly. And it would be so much less effective because uh, there's nothing to distract you during that scene. And that's a very important scene. That beginning overture is so good. It I is lo- so It's so good. smart, and it's like a cousin of, like, the 2001 overture. You know, back when you used to go see movies, and before it would start, Stanley Kubrick obviously did it a ton. Back and, when uh, movies were in the theater. Back when, and when movies were in the theater, they would just play music in the beginning. And then The Hateful Eight did it kind of as, a, as a, like, a retro wink to all of that. And mm-hmm. I feel like that was maybe, like, a cousin to the, the classic movie overture was yeah that, that that's great beginning. it's like yeah. amping you up yeah yeah totally and um that whole score and the obviously there's the iconic dun, 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 like the five note sequence yeah that's apparently like, he knew that he needed five notes and he hired a mathematician to compile a list of how many different five note combinations would be on a 12 bar scale and it was 300 some thousand and so he found the hundred that he liked the best and him and spielberg just slowly whittled it down in the in the story, wasn't it supposed to have some type of a? Well, yeah, had, that it was, was sign, it was, it was, it was whole thing. somehow it matched sign language, or you know, I wasn't. Was I'd like a, to know more about that. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I'll say about that little riff, you know, they chose the right one. It has alluring quality to it, but it also has a very positive tone to it. Yeah, and beautiful. It like rides the emotional spectrum. Right, exactly, and that that's what it, you know. I think you know, would have driven their decision-making on how to whittle it down to that one. You know, maybe there were yeah. a couple that had that. But I think, you know, they're like, okay, let's make sure that it's, you know, has positive tone to it. Simple right? and positive. Right. Yeah. And then at the end, they sample, uh, what is it, When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio, <laughs> which is just great. Like, it goes so terribly wrong, but somehow works so well in that movie. Yeah, it does. I love the, I don't want to change the subject off the music yet. No, no, I don't either. Okay. The one more the thing I'll say about the music, what you come to expect John Williams with a Spielberg film. You know, it just works, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like we were talking earlier, you just kind of expect Trent Reznor with David Fincher, right? Yeah. And it works. They're they're cultural fit, right? And you know, John Williams, you know, like he does like almost all of Spielberg's movies, maybe except I don't know, the remake of War of the Worlds, who knows? Because that was such sort of an offbeat project mm-hmm. for him. But you love Spielberg with John Williams, you know, his regular cast of characters, you know, that's what you want and that's what you expect. And it's a working formula. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no sweeping epic like him. I mean, I'd always loved him and I could write like a thesis paper on why I love John Williams. But what what would be your favorite John Williams score? Oh, my God. I mean, it's probably going to be Raiders of the Lost Ark or Empire Strikes Back. It's pretty good. I mean, I hate to... No, you know what? I take back both of those. It's E.T. <laughs> it's That's ab- an interesting one. It's absolutely one. 100% E.T. All right. All right, what, what's, your, what's yours, Corey? Can well, you narrow it down? It's tough. I mean, I'm, I don't 
really spend a whole lot of time uh, with John Williams. If you ask me my favorite Spielberg movie or you ask me my favorite uh, Nine Inch Nails song, I could tell you. Uh, but, but pro- I mean, if if I had to just think about all the movies that, that I can know that he did, certainly the Star Wars movies. I mean, that opening mm-hmm. overture right. or whatever you call that a selection right after the A Long Time Ago goes away is incredible to me. And it brings back the beautiful moments of my childhood you know i loved going to the movies as a kid on a saturday and i loved the star wars movies right how could you not mm-hmm. um so yeah star wars but then indiana jones you know the, yeah. yeah i mean That's which tough. was also another movie it's a loaded question it is a loaded it's so question loaded, Jimmy. You know? it was almost not even fair i should have written that down if like if nobody else has anything to say and there's radio silence, ask need, that question. I need some like serious time to think about that. Like, yeah, I, I'm okay. gonna stand by ET, but like I got it. I would really have like as soon as this podcast is over and I, I like go home, you're I'm gonna, gonna call think, me like, at oh, two thirty in the morning. Duh, hook. <laughs> not yeah. that not that hook was the best score. I think but, mine is uh, Superman. See, there you go. Should not have gotten the, into that. Indiana Jones. The cool thing about that is, um, I just learned this recently. I thought it was so interesting. There were. John Williams gave him two options for scores, and Steven Spielberg was like, let's just use both of them. And the two options were obviously the dan da dan 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 and then the other option was the dan 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 Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Equally powerful. Equally powerful. Equally. And they just merged them together to create the ultimate... The ultimate John Williams score. That's incredible. Yeah, isn't that no, cool? Both needed, really, because like right. the first one you did is when he is victorious or whatever, mm-hmm. right, or overcomes an obstacle, and the other one is the you know leading up to that. Anyway, yeah. So uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think that uh, it was cool that Francois Truffaut was in the movie. Like that was super interesting. Just that was to really interesting. Back into Close I, had, I had all I had all of my notes. Yeah, no, that was really cool, and yeah. I don't. He's one of those directors that I'm embarrassed that I haven't seen more of his work. I've just seen the 400 Blows. Mm-hmm. But I guess uh, that one, the Palm Door at Cannes, and that was his first feature film, which is pretty impressive. Oh, the 400, the 400 Blows. Blows. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I just think it's cool that Spielberg was like, this is a director that I like. I'm just going to put him in my movie as an actor in this role. Yeah, that's so weird. And yeah. I didn't I've, I didn't know that up until this when I just recently rewatched it. He put Richard Attenborough in Jurassic Park. That's right. Yeah. Good point. So speaking of Jurassic Park, we can come back to the music, but there were two shots in this movie when Melinda and Roy are driving in the car and they get to Devil's Tower, but you don't know it yet. You They have this shot where they both get out of the car and you see their reaction to seeing Devil's Canyon. And it's it's almost the exact same height and, like, shot setup from Jurassic Park when Sam Neill and <laughs> Laura Dern get out of the car. I mean, it's yeah. it's the same. Right. Um, and it's great. That's why I say this movie is, like, 85% reaction. It makes it just feel so much more personal, you know? Yeah, I think it's Spielberg finding his way of storytelling. I mean, I think, you know, good directors take their style and repeat it. They should. Spielberg, you know, there's a lot of shots in in uh, Close Encounters that I see he perfected, I guess, I would say that, over the years. That awesome, you know, sort of pulling back crane shot where people turn and look at whatever it is behind the camera that's, like, Mm -hmm. amazing Mm -hmm. while the camera's pulling past characters. I mean, that's, like, he does that all the time, and it works so well. Yeah. Um, And there was a lot of that in in, um, Close Encounters. The other thing that he does very well is that, 
he always when some type of scenes happening with several characters at once and something uh, some sort of uh, some sort of strategies being arranged. There's always someone that ends up walking into the foreground, you know, that walks to the foreground and sort mean. of faces yeah. and sort of looks right past camera and like has this moment of realization. Mm-hmm. And that's a great sort of blocking and camera design device. And he did that a bunch in Close Encounters. On all those scenes where they're finding the plane and finding the boat, there's always a character yeah. that like walks right to the camera and looks past. The... Yeah, to see that reaction around, before yeah. you see what they're looking at, I right. think, is such a effective... Not always appropriate, obviously. But, yeah, and they did that at the end, too, when the aliens are leaving, and it shows the whole crowd of people, and the camera tracks backwards... And then they show the ship and all the aliens are leaving. Before you see the aliens walking back onto the ship, just to see a camera track backwards while focusing on someone, you're like, oh, they're leaving. Like, you don't even have to think mm-hmm. about it. And what a cost-effective way to convey that they're leaving. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> You'd probably save a few thousand dollars on that on that shot. And probably a more interesting way to do it. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah, The camera is your storytelling device. You should use it for those to tell stories, to use it as the aspect of the storytelling. Are we still on Jurassic Park? We can be. Well, I wanted to go back to uh, the director, the French director. I love the idea in Close Encounters where uh, where he needed a translator the whole time. Yeah, like people that were needing to work together didn't speak the same language, and that was a oh. that was a metaphor for the larger know, for the larger picture. That's so true. I never even thought about that. I think that's excellent, and I, yeah. that's a Spielberg decision i'm almost 100 percent sure yeah you know i mean maybe it's in the script i don't know but it was an awesome awesome metaphorical device yeah he does stuff like that and i'm sorry to keep taking it from close encounters to other spielberg movies <laughs> i keep doing this you can't, you can't help but, it but it's like in jurassic park when um when he can't buckle the seatbelt in the beginning at, in on the helicopter so he ties the life the two together life finds a way yeah, yeah. That it won't go in so you tie them together and that's like the metaphor for how the dinosaurs are are allowed to procreate in the movie. Yeah, I'd say at least once a week I use the uh, idea, you were so busy worrying about whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think whether or not you should. It's so applicable. Yeah, Yeah. the Malcolm character in Jurassic Park is the best part. I mean, besides the dinosaurs, but, you know, the velociraptors in the kitchen. I mean, that's... I think that'll hold up 50 years from now. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, however they did that. I mean, some of the brontosauruses and stuff look a little weird, but, like, yeah. I mean, the kitchen scene is still, like, they're real. I mean, yeah. I can't get yeah. over it. I mean, if it holds up at this point, I mean, we're 25 years out. Jurassic Park was 93 because it played in the movie theater when I was working in the movie theater. Before I read that this was being re-released, uh, I think a couple months ago we watched The Arrival. That's right. And it was really reminiscent of Close Encounters. There's no the. Well, there is, but that's a terrible Charlie Sheen movie. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's just Arrival. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And that was really good. And I love the idea of not knowing what they're... Well, this is more on Close Encounters, but not really answering the question of why. And of all the things, of all the, you know, things that... Uh, unanswered questions that we're left with... I think the biggest one is probably, you know, why did you come here or why did yeah. you choose Devil's Tower or why did you whatever. So I just I love the audacity of right. like posing that question. And like none of that is important. It's not the reason for the story. I feel like audiences now have such short attention spans. It seems like there would be more 
uh, fury over close something like close encounters yeah. of the third like do you think you could get away with a close encounters of the third kind nowadays? I think it would be more family be a friendly blockbuster still yeah I mean in inception kind of did that I would hope that audiences are more you know, we touched on this the last time when we covered do the right thing but I would hope that audiences are more analytical than than they were then you know my generation certainly should be you know that oh it had you know of course it's in america you know and they bring everybody back and it's in america why can't it be in china or why can't it be mm-hmm. germany whatever right but yeah but you're right in this film it didn't it, it wasn't the point um i was fine with it it wasn't a question that needed to be answered or explored mm-hmm. um the devil's tower was a you know it's like out in the desert which i guess kind of makes sense because maybe that's the best place for their anti-gravity to work and won't destroy buildings and cities and you know and then the devil's tower was just such a cool iconic visual such a great yeah. landmark yeah total landmark um you know and, and you know maybe there's maybe the maybe the extraterrestrial uh, entities like were were drawn to that visual because it was you know an iconic thing mm-hmm. for them but that's that's where I took it in my own mind, and I was fine with a- answering those questions. Back to your earlier point, Joey, I was fine with answering all those questions myself. In fact, yeah. that was what made it fun. Yeah, maybe the Devil's Tower is just an image that's easily planted in Roy Neary's head. Like it's uh, it's something that you know he like he 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 has this idea in his head, and he tries to recreate it like in his home. He does it with like the mashed potatoes, mm-hmm. and then he does it with that thing that takes over his house. It's just this thing, like it's it's a something that like an image that they could put in their heads and that would all drive all these people to the same place, and they could implant it without using any kind of language or anything. It's just this iconic landmark. Yeah, yeah. Was, I liked that they left so much unsaid about what was going on inside his head. You know, he yeah. was losing his mind, but right. you didn't really. I don't know. There's that one guy that was like, when they get to the canyon, he's like, "Oh, there was no canyon to my doodles," and he's like, "Try sculpting." There was one hokey moment at the end. Like when the big ship comes at and everybody's like in awe of the big mothership. And then you see the one, I guess, worker bee in the one of the white, you know, jumpsuit guys. Yeah. Like runs to the porta potty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just felt like, why did that need to be in there? Yeah. It was just really dumb. I, uh, but it was hokey because he ran, you know, like it he's was scared. super hokey. It was like, pretty hokey. I would stay there and crap my pants. Sure. But, and it was pretty hokey at like this big, awesome, like moment, you know, yeah. I'm just like, why do you got to go and do that? You, you know, like, you I, wouldn't I feel like, I feel like, the, I feel like they like the studio made him put in something funny, you yeah, know, like, yeah, come yeah. on, let's make it a little funny, Steven, I, and, I you kinda, know, cause I, I just don't see Spielberg doing that. Yeah. I kind of felt that when the light hits at the end and then within two seconds, everybody put on their sunglasses Sunglasses, like, Stephen. Why do you guys all have them in your breast pocket? And uh-huh. how did everybody get them on so fast? It's an interesting point on the sunglasses. When Richard Dreyfus becomes one of the potentials, I guess, in the red suits, and they all walk out in single file line, he's the only one not wearing sunglasses. I mean, they are in the desert. It would get pretty bright during the day. Yeah. There was a line where um, where some one of the workers at the end said, you know, so I guess uh, I guess Einstein was right. And then the other guy reacts and says, yeah, Einstein was probably one of them. And that's an interesting point. I think that I feel like maybe Spielberg had that line added in. Maybe not. But it's an interesting point because um, I have read some things. I read some crazy things. I read a story that was proposing that guys like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, uh, Einstein, maybe Mm -hmm. um, guys like Beethoven, right, that are just unmatched genius 
and almost unexplainable, like how everything they do turns to gold and how they're so good at what they do way beyond everybody else that's a master of their craft. And then these guys are at these levels that are just even mm-hmm. above that and no one can touch them is that they have been uh, communicating and that their inspiration comes because they have more knowledge because they've been in communication. So you think Spielberg was given like a, a little wink to the audience with the, with the Einstein line? Probably a, well, not a wink not to the a wink, audience, a not wink a wink to, to the no people, to- <laughs> not a wink to the people that presuppose that right. that's true. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I re- I read a book that was kind of about a lot of different things, but one of the chapters was on that that certain people in history, mm-hmm. even people nefarious people like Hitler, but you know they were the reason why these people were just so good at what they do or just natural that unmatched could lead millions of people were because they just had more more information mm-hmm. and more therefore more power um but you know that star wars is based on maybe a real long time ago galaxy far mm-hmm. far away right mm-hmm. crazy thoughts right but interesting no i like it i'm on Concepts, board i, I have sure. a very easy time uh following along with this story and there obviously there's some you know suspense of disbelief but not not that much and i just i love how unbelievably relatable all of these characters are and uh that was one of i think that was one of the things with with rogue one that i that turned me off a little bit is that there's no uh relatable characters everybody's like a high ranking officer or a blind Jedi warrior or Forrest Whitaker with a vaporizer. I could relate to Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> yeah, I could relate to You came to him here to <laughs> kill me? Lies. Deception. <laughs> I can always relate Good to job. Forrest Whitaker. But yeah. yeah, you're right. I don't know. I was relating to the to the black ops guy, man. I thought Yeah, that's there was, true. He had a I need struggle. to give it a different movie. He uh, had a different st- chance. Yeah, he had a struggle going a on. A different in him, chance? You know? A different chance. And what kind of chance should I give it? And I I mean Ben Mendelssohn, I loved his character. Yeah. I could relate to yeah, him. Ben Mendelssohn. You know, and you had a look he was movie. the he was the villain, but you also had but he was also had his own you know, he was the villain but was also being villainized by the true villains, right? And he was yeah. being he knew he was being manipulated and he was in a tough spot, so I had totally. some sympathy for him even though he was a bad guy. She was not like the most active protagonist in a movie ever. Yeah, I would say. It's okay. Like, the movie kind of happens to her. She doesn't really like do anything in the movie. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, that's very true. It's a good uh, way of phrasing it. But it was a fa- it was fun to watch. Great mm-hmm. movie to watch. And I think it was the happy medium of today's technology and old Star Wars, where the where episodes one, two, and three failed. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like the aerial combat, the aerial combat in Rogue One was awesome. You know, it was like Top Gunish, where you can get into the pilot's cockpit with them without it looking bad, and you know that was really cool. I think they've they've mastered it and they figured out like what looks hokey and what doesn't. And I think they figured out that a lot of it has to do with camera position because if you watch those movies from the early aughts. Um, where they the early two thousands where they no, back odds, in odd, odd two odd three where they were like they first realized like oh we can do this like we have the CGI technology the camera was all over the place because it was kind of like this god three D camera and you see it a lot in like the original Spider Man where it's like the camera was always stationary you know like because it was a real thing in real space and then when it cuts to a shot that was created in three dimensional space on a computer the camera's flying and doing things that a camera can't do even like with a crane and they don't do that so much anymore and i think that like that's one of the things that rogue one did is like it 
even the shots that were 100% CGI, they were that 3D camera was still in a location where a normal camera could be placed mm-hmm. to shoot that scene. That's an yeah interesting point. Except for some of the aerial stuff, but then like you like that because it's like oh I'm on the wing or yeah, the camera's right, on the right. wing or whatever it is. I also think they picked their battles of where to use the CGI. Like they used it for the crafts and the ships, mm-hmm. but not like the characters. You know, like yeah. I think most of the characters. You know, most of the alien characters were, you know, live action, you know, the costume. And, yeah. yeah, like it was in the old ones. It's all about the puppets. The puppets are an integral part of it. And it's like, just because you can create a CGI character, which they still don't look great to me. But like, just because you can do it doesn't mean like it's right for Star Wars. Of course It might not. be right for something else. I don't have an issue with Gollum in Lord of the Rings. But, you know, that that came out of the gate with CGI characters. Star Wars, like something about it, something about the formula needs to have puppets yeah in the movie i still to this day think frank oz should have gotten like best supporting actor for yoda in empire strikes back i mean his his facial expressions and his eyes would get big when he would Mm -hmm. like get serious i mean it was so real yeah i mean it was unbelievably real i mean there were a couple of weird shots you know but like 95 percent of the time you were enthralled by yoda and you watch Mm -hmm. it now even as an adult and you're still like that's real Mm -hmm. and then you look at yoda in like the episode three when he's jumping around and doing like a bunch of barrel rolls and stuff and i'm like this looks dumb it looks like a a honey i shrunk the shrek yeah (laughs) i like that honey i shrunk the shrek honey i shrunk the shrek Uh, they'll take that idea that'll be the next they will copyright that uh so the ending I don't find the ending to be controversial. Apparently, it drew... Well, you were saying there's, like, many yeah. different uh, versions of this ending. Right. Well, Corey I, was talking about how, like, the studio interference, and, like, did they make that guy run to the porta potty And, like, I know that there, like, there was a little bit of studio interference in there because they did make him change the ending. It's not the ending that, that he wanted to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess depending on which version you watch. Right. So he went back and did the ending that he wanted. I'm not, like, 100% clear on it. It was like, quite a few years later. Yeah. I don't think they were hugely significant, hugely to him. But... I think it is significant because, like, it goes back to, like, what we were talking about with how much do you show the audience and how much do you want them to come up with in their imagination. And so it's showing him going on board the ship and then leaving or going on board the ship and then you're in the ship with him and you're seeing all of this crap through his eyes. It's like it's not important. Like, yeah. You don't. That scene is 100% more effective when it's in, left to the audience's imagination. Don't, don't limit my imagination. Yeah, okay. and that's such a studio executive move, too. Yeah. You know? To go like, on board with him? To go on board the... To go on board... What, right, right. Yeah, I agree. Or uh, to show his healing family six months later, <laughs> you know, emotionally hearing with their new stepdad, Dean. and Yeah, yeah. But not important to... I mean, yeah, it's not the story. The story is his journey and his need to do that. And that, you know... I, I'm of the opinion that Terry Gar's character should have accepted it in the end. Like, yeah, that's going to be traumatic and hard, but this here's a here's a journey that transcends space and time and what we thought the universe was all about. And if someone right. that I know and love can be a part of that, then I think you would celebrate it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but to go on board with them would have been a terrible decision. I mean, I don't know what ending I saw. Did I see the original? Did I you see the... You saw the director's cut. Did I? Okay. Well, then, yeah. Okay, that's great. That's the one I, I like. That's well, the I, one I remember. Yeah, I think it's perfect. He disappears into the light, and that's mm-hmm. where it should end. I mean, right. it, you know, uh, I hate when people tell me they didn't like Castaway because he didn't go up the road at the end. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's the point, dude. Like, you're supposed yeah. to be Tom Hanks. You're mm-hmm. supposed to decide which 
part of the crossroads you're going to go now. Yeah. You know, like, that's why they ended it like that, right? Like, the filmmakers want you to decide. And that's why, that to, that's what made it beautiful for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if you would have drove up the road after the girl, forget about it. It might have ruined the entire movie for me, and I love that movie. Right. You know, and it's like going on board with Richard Dreyfus at the end. No. You're supposed to, like, go to your mind now and decide what it looks like inside there. You know, and what it's going to feel like and, mm-hmm. you know, where you're going to go. I mean, that's up to you. It's your imagination should take over from there. Yeah. Or the alternative, if he didn't get on the ship and you think about quality of life back at home six months after those events, you know, like if he was trying to put his life together, yeah. I can't imagine what kind of they would come up with. It would be ridiculous. Oh, it would be awful. Like that's the only that's the only appropriate ending given the circumstances that, you know, that we have, like mm-hmm. given the journey that he's taken. That's the only... It's the only logical solution. And he he's already gone he's gone past the point of no return, you know? Like the whole story about when you get past the halfway point to the moon, it's quicker to just like go around it and come back than it is to turn around. You know, he had gone too far to go mm-hmm. back to his wife and kids. Right? Like mm-hmm. it wouldn't it wouldn't have worked for him or them because he was past the middle point. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's why Kevin Spacey dies at the end of American Beauty. He'd gone past the part of being able to come back to any sort of um, world that he knew before he had made all these life changing decisions. Yeah. He has to die at the end, right? I know. I, I hate when people say that the ending is sad because at the, his opening monologue, he basically tells you, <laughs> says, I'm, I'm going to die at the end of this movie, <laughs> so don't be upset. It's interesting yeah. how you don't really take that like seriously you know and you right. still watch and you're like no you don't you know what i mean like it's yeah. still, like yeah. i i didn't know really that mm-hmm. the first time i yeah. saw it like what he really meant by that like does it mean a figurative death? yeah t- completely <laughs> right. you know and that's why that was awesome i mean that that's a movie you know that's so well written oh, you know but you know it's people are like oh movie. why did he have to die at the end you know and i'm like i mean it's like well because he had done so many things that were like beyond like the world that he lived in and he couldn't come back to it it's like Tom Hanks having to get rid of Wilson, man. Like, yeah. you can't go back to the regular world with a volleyball as a pet, <laughs> and you're like 40 years he old. He shouldn't. He tried his best. You know, he he really did. Uh, the last thing that I had that I wanted to mention was the title of this movie. I had never given a second's thought to it, but in society and pop culture, if you're talking about movies and someone says "close in," they're like, "Oh, close encounters of the third kind." Like, it's just so ingrained in yeah. in us and. I was watching this movie and I was like, where the hell did they get this title? And apparently this uh, famous author and ufologist, which is an awesome, that just really worked out well. Whoever like coined that term. Ufologist. Ufologist. title. It's so good. Anyway, he wrote a book in 1949 describing the 17 stages of uh, encounters with extraterrestrials. Right. And the first is a sighting. The second is proof of existence. And the third is contact. Which is really interesting because they could have named this movie any number of things, but I feel like people don't really stop and wonder like where does this title come from? It's an interesting mm-hmm. title, and it's very it's very long, and it's obviously we know it now, and we I attribute that like it being part of the the ethos. That's because of that movie, but like was that a part of like did people know what that meant back then, or was that I don't a I think it kind thing? of plays to your point on not liking the term science fiction because that title is a very i mean i guess i'll say factual comes liberally from, because it, I, it, it comes from it comes from a true labeling process that was created yeah and and you know why is there the need to have it title itself is not science fiction 
right? Mm-hmm. It came from a, a labeling system that mm-hmm. does exist that is in place. Yes. And it goes to the point that either the writers and or Spielberg, you know, read those types of books, and that's where yeah. they get their inspiration. It just gives you right. something to think about. I mean, you're, you're left with something to think about the, before the movie even begins. Because this was before the, the dawn of, of the trailer. I mean, pe- people probably knew that it was about aliens, but you don't really get much, uh-huh. you know, going into it. It's interesting. I, th- I wonder how, you know, because it's, it, it's gotten shortened. Everybody says, oh, Close Encounters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go watch Close Encounters tonight. And you wonder how many people, maybe, do they even know that it's Close Encounters <laughs> so, of the third kind? Like, it's become, like, its own euphemism inside yeah. of the title. And in 1977, Where, if somebody said, I had a Close Encounter, would they have been like, oh, you hooked up with somebody? Right. Because it's, <laughs> so, like, it's so, like, uh, it's common, so common vernacular. Yeah. But would have anyone prior to that movie coming out understood what that meant like in mainstream if you were not in mainstream society but if you were in the military you would or or government certain government agencies and there was that terrible movie that came out called the fourth kind that's right yeah it was not good well the fourth kind there's fire in the sky did anybody see fire fire in the sky oh my god we could do a whole episode on that so fourth fourth kind is uh, abduction Ah, and then either ex- experimentation and or transgenics. Oh, okay. Al- oh, alien seventeen, right? Well, yeah, mm-hmm. there's there's many, but fourth yeah. kind then is uh, is physical invasion, yeah. right? Well, what's the ninth kind? Tra- what's yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? Transgenics is the concept of alien human hybrids. I'm on board with that. Should we just close on that then? Yeah, <laughs> let's I'm down. Close on that statement. Do you have any any last words on uh, close encounters? I love any movie that uh, gets all of its product placement out in just one short burst, just one quick scene, and Close Encounters does it with all the trucks when they're closing down uh, the Devil's, what do you call it? Devil's, oh, Devil's, Devil's Canyon. Devil's Canyon. Devil's Tower. Devil's Tower. In Wyoming, down, I think. Devil's Tower, yeah, and they have all of the, uh, they have the Dunkin' Donuts truck rolling out. Oh, yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Piggly Wiggly. Piggly yeah, Wiggly. that's right. Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Just, they were just like, let's just get them all out right here. And just, Coke, right? One of them was Coke. Was mm-hmm. one of them Coke? I think so. I believe that I grew up in the golden age of movies at, at the right age. I was born in, in 71, and so I was 6 or 7 for the first Star Wars, 8, 9, 10, whatever, for Jedi. I was 11 for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right. I was 11 or 12 for E.T. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, all the, all, I just had, like, the greatest childhood of summers, of Saturdays, from the time I was, you know, 7 yeah. or 8 years old until I was old enough to start caring more about girls but like right. all those movies i would go see i've got to give a shout out to my my cousin chad he and i would go like every saturday like my mom would drive us to the movie theater his mom would pick us up type of deal right and it was just all those movies the all the star wars movies and all the in, indiana jones movies and back to the future and right. all those amazing films that um i wonder if it if there's has there been a another good decade like Not that like one that I'm, Jimmy, can you think of... No, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the movies that I have those opinions on when I was that age are the same movies. Like, Mr. Mom, for me, is one of my absolute favorites. And a big part of that is, uh, I guess, in the late 70s and early 80s, cinematographers used haze and dirt as, like, a diffusing tool. And it was this trend that was everywhere. But it just it washed out colors and it uh, blurred out key lights and so Mm -hmm. it just has this overall like really soft 
um, it's a ton of that in feel Spielberg movies. Yeah, and it, it was all over Close Encounters, uh-huh. and Mr. Mom is is the same way. Like every shot, it looks like somebody emptied a aerosol can. Something about that light shining through a haze. Like I just immediately think of Spielberg. Yeah, totally. Me e. too. Especially in Stranger Things, is kind of like mm-hmm. taking that a little bit and doing its own thing with it. But yeah, he doesn't do that anymore. No, no, that was not a good idea to uh, use. Dirt and haze is a diffusing tool. Dirt and haze. <laughs> Do you have any closing words on uh, close encounters? It's just close encounters just now. Close Let's encounters. not kid ourselves. Um, closing words on close encounters of the third kind. I think it is a great film to represent Steven Spielberg's early years and the evidence of his greatness to come. Absolutely. I think it's a good example of less is more in terms of, of what do we show and and story and Martin Scorsese has this really cool interview where he's talking about the difference between plot and story and the plot of Close Encounters you can sum up in about two sentences but the story goes so much deeper and um, he's just he's a great storyteller and he's a great filmmaker so next week we're doing Breakdown with uh, (laughs) J.T. Walsh and M.C. (laughs) Ganey And uh, Kathleen uh-huh. Quinlan. And no one else. And no one film. else. Not that I can think of. One more thing. I got to give my mom listens to this on 90.7 mm-hmm. in Peoria, Illinois. So I have, to give my, I have to give a shout out to my mom. Hi, Corey's mom. Hey, mom. What's your mom's name? Becky. Becky. Hi, Thank, Becky. Thanks for listening, mom. Yes, thanks for listening, Becky. So yeah, you can hear the rest of our episodes on the SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash movie show theater. Otherwise, we're here every Tuesday at 9. I want to thank my guest, Joey. Thanks for stepping into the microphone. Thank you, Jimmy. You didn't step into it, but... I was pretty close to it the entire time. You were, but you were close. You were at mm-hmm. a good distance. Yeah. And you sounded great. I'm the distance they say you're supposed to be from a microphone, right? Yeah. Is you don't even need the headphones. He doesn't or... even wear headphones. <laughs> He's so confident. Corey, thanks for coming by again. Thank you, Jimmy. So until next time, this is Movie Show Theater.